Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in Parshat Tzav this morning, and we're in the last third of every Parsha because we're in the third year of the triennial reading. And so we are beginning our reading this morning at chapter 8 of Leviticus, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron along with his sons, and the vestments, the anointing oil, the bull of purification offering, the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble the whole community at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and when the community was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting, Moses said to the community, This is what the Lord has commanded to be done. Go on. Then Moses brought Aaron and his sons forward, and washed them with water. He put the tunic on him, girded him with the sash, clothed him with the robe, and put the ephod on him, girding him with the decorated band with which he tied it to him. He put the breastplate on him and put into the breastplate the Urim and Thummim, and he set the headdress on his head, and on the headdress in front he put the gold frontlet, the holy diadem, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Go on. Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it, thus consecrating them. He sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times, anointing the altar, all its utensils, and the labor with its stand to consecrate them. He poured some of the anointing oil upon Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. Moses then brought Aaron's sons forward, clothed them in tunics, girded them with sashes, and wound turbans upon them as the Lord had commanded Moses. So we are getting here the description of the ordination of Aaron and his sons. So this is the fulfillment of the instruction that's been given for them to be consecrated right, to service. The, and the basket of unleavened bread. Mm-hmm. So the unleavened bread is, is now a thing. It's not just something that happened when they fled Egypt in haste. So unleavened bread is now part of ritual? It, it was part of what you ate with the sacrifice. As a reminder. We don't get told. Okay. So it's unclear. It's unclear wh- which originates where. It is possible that the story of the exodus from Egypt comes out of already having an experience of unleavened bread. If you recall, Pesach is really two festivals. We have the Pesach, the lamb, right? You slaughter and eat the lamb. And then you have a festival of matzot. There's two holidays. They get put together. The lambing festival is the semi-nomadic pastoralists, right? They would have had their lambing festival in the springtime when lambing happens um, and the Chag HaMatzot, the festival of unleavened bread would have happened at the wheat harvest in the spring so if you're only going to eat of the new grain you want to clean everything else out you're only eating new grain by definition you have no sourdough you have no starter which means it has to be unleavened Right, so it is pot. It is it is more than likely um, that is the origin of those two festivals that we put together as Passover. Right, once Israel comes together, semi-nomadic pastoralists together with farmers. Once they are forming a nation and they have their history, now those two festivals become one, and we have our springtime lambing wheat harvest festival thing <coughs> called Passover. And right, they lay history and. On. And then the Israelites layer their now unique history onto those two festivals, which is what happens, right? Remember, we've talked about they emerge out of Canaanite pagan society, right? So they would have had a springtime, these two festivals from pagan life. Now you have to lay the Israelite interpretation of those pagan festivals onto it so that you're doing Israelite. You're reconstructing, right, ancient Near Eastern Canaanite or whatever, ancient Near Eastern Mesopotamian 
you're reconstructing those religious traditions into now the Israelite narrative. So it is likely we already had matzah. We had matzot. And you had a festival that dealt with matzah. Now you have to give it an Israelite meaning. So now you start talking about the slavery in Egypt. Now you talk about they left in haste. And that's why we eat matzah. Right? So... You know, you can always tell when I don't have a lot of text that I want to get through, right? We have really long conversations about other stuff. But now related to that, well, I don't, I don't understand. Say, say more. Right. Out of Egypt, where there's no archaeological evidence that that ever happened. So there's a, a big story that was created for this festival. Mm, yes and no. So likely there is a historical root of the story of oppression in Egypt, right? Some group of Semites had that experience in Egypt, right? right. So, so that's its own historical thing that they then put into context of redemption, redemption from slavery, the desert, Sinai, right? That, that's its own, that's kind of its own thing. It's not just to explain matzah. It isn't written to explain matzah. Matzah becomes a part of that story because you're reconstructing the meaning of matzah. But the meaning of that story of the liberation from slavery and our need to eat lechem oni, don't forget you were slaves, right? That is a very important story for the people who experienced that and then the ones who related to it, right? When the Israelites bring it in, the, the locals who, who can relate to being oppressed by their landlords and such, it's important to them, this idea that we're going to eat lechem oni, that we don't forget that we were oppressed, that we ally ourselves with the poor, right? That it was, it was important. It, it's not just they made it up. Does that make sense? Like, it emerges out of their experience and becomes... So, when we reconstruct stuff, we're not making it up. The practice is important to us because our ancestors did it, or whatever, fill in the blank, right? It's a Jewish thing to do. We, we revalue what we're doing to align with who we understand ourselves to be now and our current values and our current way of seeing the world. Does that make sense? Yeah. We don't make it up out of whole, whole cloth. Like we, we take what we've inherited and then we understand it and explain it differently based on our current worldview. That's what the Israelites were doing. Taking what they inherited, what had been in the neighborhood in their right practice for a really long time, and they're reconstructing it and explaining it in the way that they now understand Yahweh to be working in their lives. One more question. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry to get off on Pesach. But Not it's to coming. worry. Um, Pesach's coming, that is, in the question, too. What about lamb at Pesach? I understand it's not to be served because it's an animal sacrifice. Is that... Is that I don't know if that's somewhere in the Mishnah. I've just heard it in, among Jews. But it, I, I don't think so, but I, I don't know. I, I don't want to speak. It's possible that there is some halachic ruling about it, but I, I don't think it would be because it's not, because it's a sacrifice. We eat lamb. Yes. We're not forbidden to eat lamb. But on Pesach. We yeah. have the shank bone to represent the, right. the, the sacrifice. sacrifice. Right. Um, we always ate the sacrifices anyway. The sacrifices at the temple, we ate. Well, and, So and it wouldn't be a reason not to eat We're still it. doing it. So I don't know. I'd have to look it up. I'd have to check. It's possible that there's some something about it, I don't, but I don't know it. All right. So, where are we? <laughs> so, Aaron and his sons right, are being brought forward, as are their vestments, 
right? And the anointing oil and the purgation offering and matzot. And you gather together the edah, right, the community. And some commentators want to look at this and say, uh, look where they are. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but they are at the entrance of the Oheo Mo'ed. That uh, there's this whole piece written about um, standing in the opening, right? That it's this. This is where it takes place. Is at the opening, right? Because why aren't they doing it inside? You know the Mishkan, right? That's really where it would make most sense to go into the sacred precinct and ordain them there, right? And so that there's this idea that the petach, the opening, is where Aaron stands, Davka, right? That that it's symbolic of his service, that he, he isn't just serving the Mishkan and God, he's serving the people. His service is about connecting the people with the divine, right? And that this is a, a, a physical symbolizing of what this whole ordination business is actually about, standing in the breach, standing at the opening. So they are at the opening of the Ohel Moed, and Moses said, this is what Yehovah is commanded to be done. He brings Aaron and his sons forward, and he's going to have to, of course, wash them, right? You have to. If you're going to deal with changing status, not status, but, well, maybe, rich, changing ritual status, you, you have to have cleansing. washing. You have to have cleansing. Have to. So they're going to be washed. Duh. Right, that, that makes total sense. So then he, he dresses Aaron, Here. right, in the garments that have been created for this purpose. And he puts on the aphod, and then he puts the breast piece. We know the Urim and Tumim, right? This was used for a form of divination. Um, Aaron would ask yes or no questions, and the Urim and Tumim answered yes or no. That was your favorite part. Yeah. Was the Urim and Tumim? Uh, the divination aspect of it. Mm. Tell me more. Um, I don't know. I guess I didn't think that um, they were doing that. Silly girl. <laughs> and so I was just like, oh, cool. I like this stuff. They're doing it. How neat. They were indeed. They were indeed. So, uh, But it, the Urim and Tumim can't give you answers other than yes or no. And it was only for big national Situations. So Aaron didn't go and say, you know, should I have lamb or brisket for dinner? Right? It was a. It was when there was a national crisis, and and Aaron needed an answer that he felt was going to be um, from God. Then that was when the Orient. Should we make war on Midian? And so the answer is yes or no. All right. He set the headdress on his head, and has the gold frontlet and the diadem. What's written there? What's written on that? Kadosh Ladonai. Kadosh L'Yudhei Set aside for Yudhei And he is, right, that, that is what's on his forehead whenever he officiates. Is he is to remember that he is Kadosh Ladonai. He is holy. He is sanctified. He is set apart for and he wears on the breastplate, right? On his breastplate, he has the 12 stones of the 12 tribes. Yes? Yes. And so he, he is kadosh ladonai. He's, he's aware constantly by having it right on his forehead. You are set aside for holy purposes. And you stand to do all of that on behalf of the people of Israel. Right? It's not about you. It is about service to the 12 tribes. Do I see a hand? Right up here. Yes. Those on that side of the room, you can see the 12 colors of the 12 tribes. And we have our rabbis sitting below them in service to the community of Israel. There you go. (laughs) The more things change. So he takes now, oh, did you read that 10? Yeah, you did, right? Yes. So we have Moshe taking the 
the uh, oil, and it is called Shemen Hamishcha, the anointing oil, right? And he mashachs the Mishkan. All right, so, and we're going to see, we're going to get another verb, but this is the way you do it in the ancient Near East. In scholarly work, annotated thusly. <laughs> All right. So you have lakach, yitzak, and mashach. So these are the verbs involved in anointing. You have, you have to take, right? So this is a ritual take. Moshe has to take it, and then he's going to pour it. We're going to see with the oil. And then that those actions affect anointing and anointing affects consecration okay so you have to anoint you have to take pour anoint in order to consecrate what's the difference between pouring and anointing exactly <laughs> is, is, is anointing intentionality and pouring is the action so um, so clear it is clear that the this shemen hamishcha is something special sorry so um, the anointing oil is a special kind mm-hmm. of oil and in my uh, study last night mm-hmm of the anointing of Aaron, a 13-page article that you are welcome to borrow (laughs) if you have trouble sleeping. Uh, So um, it's that the anointing oil had certain uh, incense as part of it, right? So this, this oil is oil that smells good. So the anointing oil... Uh, is a special oil used for the purpose of uh, anointing. It's not, it, it's not just cooking oil, and you like. De- in other words, it's not just the action that affects anointing. It's the actual oil, right? So it's got. Uh, I'm trying to look at Usually the ingredients. Touching parts of the body too that are significant. So the the oil had in it. Most likely cinnamon and I had a whole list here. Cinnamon and um, Frank, you know, what is it? Frankincense and all that groovy stuff. And so the. Sorry. The. This article suggests that smell is an extension of the personality. So if you think about it, when we used to wear perfume, right? Or I'm going to turn my mic off. In Heinz case. <laughs> um, if, you, if you remember perfume, right? It, there was a very distinct... It's back on. Thank you. Um, there's a very distinct smell that then becomes associated with that person. So, like, when my mother was going out, um, she would wear Shalimar, right? So, since my childhood, the sound of her charm bracelet, right, and the smell of Shalimar when she would kiss me goodnight before they left meant mom was going out for a special evening. So, when I smell Shalimar, right, there's this very distinct memory, right? We don't wear perfume anymore? Most of us don't, or at least most people I know don't wear perfume anymore. Right? So many people are sensitive to chemicals that I don't wear it. Like, I, I haven't worn it in years. You wear essential oils. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> you can get, like, a bracelet. So, right? So what did Kayla just say? We wear essential oils. We wear essential oils. So, so we... Even if you don't want to wear chemicals, like there's still kind of this attachment to wanting to smell good. And the anointing oil would have smelled really good. Really good. Uh, and so it seems that if, if 
Smell is an extension of the personality and of the self, kind of connected to breath. Right? You, you, it's, it's what comes off of you, out of you, right? If smell is, a, so, is an extension of the personality, it seems that part of what the ancient Near Eastern rite is doing is saying that Aaron and his garments and the things that are going to be anointed in the Mishkan are all smells that belong to God. It's an extension of God's personality, if you will. It's God's perfume, right? It's God's reach. It's God's odor that is given only to those who are serving God, right? It's God's signature fragrance. No one else can wear it. It belongs to Yudhei because the priest belongs to Yudhei Vavhei and is an extension of Yudhei Vavhei. That's the point. That's why they smell like that. Because it's an extension of the divine presence. Yeah? So is there anything... Hey, okay, hang on. Yeah, Sarah? Is there anything from that ceremony that remains in today's uh, inauguration of very interesting question. So does any of this remain in ordaining rabbis? So ordination in and of itself, right, is a concept that is after this. It's, it's after Mishkan stuff. It goes back to when Moshe lays his hands on Joshua. That's what we have left as a ritual for ordinating, ordinating? For the ordaining, thank you. The ordaining of rabbis is when Moshe puts his hands on Joshua. And the way the tradition understands that motion is that Moshe is transferring his authority, which comes from God, onto Joshua. And that is called um, the, the, it's smicha, Right, So he, he lays his hands on Joshua and gives Joshua at that moment, according to the rabbis, gives him smicha. That transfers the zappage that Moshe got on Sinai to Joshua. Then Joshua does it for the elders. Then the elders do it to the, you know, and so this, this, this comes all the way down to now putting the hands on a, a rabbi that you're going to ordain and transferring that zappage that goes all the way back to Moshe. That is what's done in every single branch of Judaism except for Reconstructionism. Really? Why? Reconstructionism does not believe in ordination. We are not ordained as rabbis. We graduate. An, acad- an academic program that gives us the title rabbi just as people earn the title doctor by studying, right? And doing, you know, of course. But um, Reconstructionism does not believe in zappage (laughs) and does not believe that rabbis have any special power or authority or connection back to anybody any differently than any other Jew. And they were deeply committed, the founders of the movement were deeply committed to not separating out rabbis as people who are somehow closer to divinity in any way than other Jews. That was a really important part right, of the founding of the movement. It's why they needed to leave the conservative movement, right? Because Kaplan and his students couldn't anymore say that they believed that any of this originated at Sinai in terms of originating with God. Look, it could have originated at Sinai, but... What we have is the human side of that conversation at Sinai. So let's say it is a conversation with the divine at Sinai. What we have is the Israelite side of that conversation, not the divine. So, so you, you can understand why they would say then, all right, well, we're not going to then say, okay, well, rabbis have some special connection to that force that other Jews don't have. And Purim proves it. <laughs> no, I was saying that it's a set apart. 
the, the act of anointing sets the person apart from everybody else who's not anointed. They anoint the Queen of England or the Kings of England in their, in their ceremonies. It's, it's exactly what you're saying the, the Reconstructionists didn't agree with because they wanted their rabbis close to the, who they were serving. Correct. Correct. So rabbis are not set aside. They're not consecrated. Right. So the other thing to remember is that once the temple is destroyed, there becomes a serious taboo, serious taboo about doing any of this. So to your question, not only do we have nothing left of this, we're not allowed to have anything left of this to your thing about the Pesach lamb, right? It, we, it made them very nervous. It made the rabbis extremely nervous, like to have any contact with anything like this because you could be encroaching. So you don't use frankincense and myrrh because you could accidentally make the incense that was used in the temple. God forbid. Now you'd be encroaching, right? And what happens with encroachment? Bad stuff. Really bad stuff. If encroachment means death. So, so that stays. So it's interesting. The power of this stuff stays in that you can't encroach, so you can't have anything to do with any of it. Right? So where did, we, where did we decide together that we cease the remnants of this? In the Catholic Church. Yes. Because they were supersessionist. Christianity supersedes Judaism. Christianity replaces all of this. Christians become the new Israel. Jesus is the new sacrifice. The priests now serve that sacrificial rite and so they maintain a connection to this, right? Our tradition went exactly the opposite, not only away from the idea of sacrifice, which we've talked about a million times, but, but even further to say, we, we, this still holds. This is still consecration for us. This is still powerful and, and, and in place in some ways. And so if you encroach, that's really bad. Right, so there's, if the Alaska mosque was not there, we as a people would have a civil war over whether or not we could excavate at the Temple Mount. Because rabbinic tradition forbids any contact with the Mishkan, with the Temple, except for priests. So only Kohanim, right, would be able to step on that sacred space and they would have to be consecrated and we don't have any of that so if you don't have a temple and you can't consecrate anybody nobody can step there that's how powerful it still is so it's been gone for 2,000 years but it's still incredibly powerful I grew up with a real visceral sense of fear around any of this stuff like, God forbid, if I saw frankincense and myrrh, I was like, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, I grew up with a very palpable sense of you don't screw around with that stuff. Because it's, right? It's, 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 it's big. It's really big. So, um, but we do still have the Kohanim in a special place. Yeah. So we've kept a remnant of, right. a remnant. of stuff with Kohanim. Some for sure. Some people Some do. Way. Some people do. Some people don't. Like Reconstructionists, don't. Right? Reform Jews don't. Because it's lifting Kohanim artificially up when there's not when they don't serve. If you're not, if you're not consecrated, what makes you special? What makes you different if you're not consecrated? Nobody's consecrated anymore. But you know, we get attached everybody, and everybody is in a way. Uh, every person has that special place that is consecrated. That is part of. Uh, All right. So now, now you are reconstructing yes, consecration. Absolutely. Nobody's consecrated. In this right. system, according to this system, nobody's consecrated. Yes. 
Now, if you want to reconstruct what consecration means, that's another business, right? All right. So Aaron and his sons and all the stuff is, is mashacht, right? Is anointed, right? So, of course, you already hear, I would imagine, right? A word that comes out of here. What comes out of here? Mashiach. Yes. Mashiach. What's Mashiach? Say anointed one. Messiah. Anointed one. Mashiach. All it means is the anointed one. That's what it means. It's literally the anointed one. Like we say Messiah and it has all this stuff loaded on it, right? But what if we do away with saying Messiah the same way we do away with saying sacrifice, right? If it's a korban, it's about drawing close. It's about relationship, right? So I prefer korban, as you know, to sacrifice. And I prefer Mashiach to Messiah. Like I hate that word because it's so loaded for everybody, right? It's loaded for us as Jews, and it's loaded for us as Jews living in a Christian context. In, in the uh, Jesus narrative, um, when supposedly he was born, the three wise men came with frankincense and myrrh. Of course. Is that? Of course. That you have to. Okay. Of course. <laughs> if you're dealing with Israelite culture, you, you have to. He's going to be the anointed one. He's the Messiah. What are you going to anoint him with? Of course, frankincense. Sweet smelling oil. You're going to anoint him with the Israelite tool for anointing. Okay. Because otherwise he's not anointed. So absolutely they're going to use, right, this. Christians often um, translate Mashiach as Savior. And I think that's where we get him a lot of trouble. Um, the anointed one, we anoint kings and priests, and we anoint utensils, a lot of stuff. So it just means an anointed person. It never has meant savior. I don't know. I don't know that they translate. I don't know that they translate Mashiach as savior. I don't think so. Well, when they're saying Jesus is Messiah, they're using it, I think, my understanding, as a savior. He's but that, that's Christian. Religion. But that's uh, but but that's not that's not M- Messiah. That's not Mashiach. That that's about the theology mm-hmm. of the sacrifice of Christ. Oh, okay. Or Jesus. Right. She can't decide. No, I, I, there's something uh, that when Jesus came, they thought the Messiah, the Savior, has come. And so we're still waiting for the Messiah to come. They think he's coming again. I'm not arguing that. I'm saying I don't know that they translate Mashiach as Savior. I think they translate it as the anointed one, the Messiah. What they believe connected to all of that is different. Of course there's an element that he's the savior, but right. that's not about Mashiach, I don't think. Okay. I would have to ask my Christian colleagues, but I don't think that's connected to Mashiach. I don't know. This I, is the problem we have as English. Okay. Well, there's, I mean, they go to, they go to the prophets. That, that's where they come up with some of that language is the prophets. The suffering servant. He's fulfilling the Jewish prophecies. Yeah. It's it's not this. No. I I think it's been mistranslated is what I'm saying. But when people hear Messiah. Okay, I'm not gonna argue about it. Um I'll ask my Christian colleagues what what they say. But um but it's 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 the prophets where they start to read this element in. It, it's usually not Torah. All right. Huh? Isaiah, right. Right. And the and the, right, this whole suffering servant business. Using holy smoke in fumigation context, which of course deeply tied in to the notion of uh, anointing, uh, is the purging 
by way of a sacred smoke of incense. So you've got a very rich pagan tradition of uh, swinging the censer. It's right here. It's right here. This incense altar. That's what the incense altar is for. Purgation. Absolutely. You have to have it. Right? Or it's not. Otherwise the bugs will get you. <laughs> right. Exactly. You have, you have to. Right? So, so we have both the incense, which fills the mishkan with the smell. And then you have the smell worn by the priest. And let us not forget you have a lot of killed animals which do not smell good. <laughs> but they're... I'm just going to say, when they're cooking, they smell pretty good. When they're cooking, but... So we'll go to 14. Okay. He led forward the... Speaking of this. Speaking of this. He led forward the bull of purification offering. Aaron and his sons laid their hands upon the head of the bull of purification Purgation. Offering. This is purification. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Okay, go ahead. I'm just reading this translation. Yeah, I get it. Offering. And it was slaughtered. Moses took the blood and with his finger uh, put some on each of the horns of the altar, purifying the altar. Then he poured out the blood at the base of the altar. Thus he consecrated it in order to make expiation upon it. All right, so it's interesting that yours says purification. Mm -hmm. Ours says purgation. What's the Hebrew? Chatat. Chatat. What's chatat? Chet. So what is it about? It's about sin. Which is just missing the mark. Which is missing the mark. This is about sin. So Aaron and his sons bring forward a sin offering. That's the fr- that's part of their ordination. They bring forward a sin offering. What's that about? They have to be purified before they can start work. Purified? We, we, we wash, right, all that kind of stuff. Because they're human beings. And? And they make mistakes. <laughs> if they're human beings, it is assumed <laughs> that they have sinned. It is assumed they have sinned. That has to be dealt with before they can be purified and anointed and consecrated and all that business. You have to deal with sin. And what I love about our tradition is that it was assumed the high priest had sinned. Mm-hmm. So the, the bull comes forward, and how do you make it the victim? You have to transfer you onto it. So again... It's the same motion, and it's the same word. It was brought forward, lismuch, for them to do smicha on to the victim. So that there's this, right, there's this transfer that happens. So that now the bull stands in for, right, the sinner. sinner. Exactly. And then the blood, as we know, is ritual detergent, and so it cleanses the space. All right, go on. Moses then took all of the fat that was about the entrails and the protuberance of the <clears throat> liver and the two kidneys in their fat and turned them into smoke on the altar. The rest of the bull, its hide, its flesh, and its dung, he put to the fire outside the camp as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then he brought forward the ram of burnt offering. Aaron and his sons laid their hands upon the ram's head, and it was slaughtered. Moses dashed the blood against all sides of the altar. The ram was cut up into sections, and Moses turned the head, the sections, and the suet into smoke on the altar. Moses washed the entrails and the legs with water and turned all of the ram into smoke. That was a burnt offering for a pleasing odor, a gift to the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Because the Olah, the Holocaust, right, is completely given to God. None of it is eaten by people. So that is completely offered to God. God gets the whole thing in an Olah. So you first do a chatat, 
you first clean up the sin business. Now you're going to offer. Now the priests are going to offer God a gift, right, of the Holocaust. Okay, go on. Uh, go on. He brought forward the second ram, the ram of ordination. Aaron and his sons laid their hands upon the ram's head, and it was slaughtered. Moses took some of its blood and put it on the ridge of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. Moses then brought forward the sons of Aaron and put some of the blood on the ridges of their right ears and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the big toes of their right feet. And the rest of the blood Moses stashed against every side of the altar. He took the fat, the broad tail, all the fat about the entrails, the protuberance of the liver, and the two kidneys and their fat, and the right thigh. Can we keep on going? Yeah. From the basket of unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took one cake of unleavened bread, one cake of oil bread, and one wafer, and placed them on the fat parts and on the right thigh. He placed all of these on the palms of Aaron and on the palms of his sons and elevated them as an elevation offering before the Lord. Then Moses took them from their hands and turned them into smoke on the altar with a burnt offering. This was an ordination offering for a pleasing odor. It was a gift to the Lord. Moses took the breast and elevated it as an elevation offering before the Lord. It was Moses' portion of the ram of ordination as the Lord had commanded Moses. All right. So Moshe is the one doing the anointing, both right of space and of people. So it's an interesting... An interesting role. Moshe affects the ordination of Aaron, but Moshe will not be anointed. Moshe will not serve. Moshe has the authority, the power to anoint, but not to serve. And yet his connection is so tight. So it is a very interesting situation that Moshe is in. Only the blood of a sacrificial animal serves as detergent. <laughs> you ask a question, you get an answer. So only, only blood of a victim offered by the priests is ritual detergent. Otherwise, blood is a contaminant, as is every single thing that comes out of a human body. Semen, all of that stuff is anything that comes out of us is a contaminant in terms of ritual purity it, it is a dysregulator you, purity is the regular state um, impurity is the non-regular state when things come out of us it is a dysregulator so if one is intimate and one has intercourse it is a, you, you are dysregulated. If you have a baby, you are dysregulated. If you are menstruating, and therefore a, an egg has died, and is, right, you're shedding, it is a dysregulator. And same, same if a man has night emissions. It's, it's a dysregulator. He's, he's Tamei. He's impure. So it, it's often, I think often it gets laid on women for lots of reasons, that that's the big, they're contaminated. But any, any bodily fluid is a contaminant. So you are commanded to have intercourse. That's a mitzvah. But it's dysregulating. So we have this bizarre relationship now to the idea of ritual impurity. That 
<coughs> There's some of it in the ancient world, but n- not like we confuse it. We really mess it up. Right? For them, it made a lot of sense, that system. And I've talked about it a lot in here. <coughs> but um, but we, we really have messed it up. Right? And that we still hold to women being impure, blah, blah, blah. You know, and we don't talk about wet dreams for men. Right. Or, or intercourse. Like, you know, we just... It, 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 and I think there, there's a lot of misogynistic reasons for that. And I'm not denying that we <coughs> don't have misogyny. Thank you. Within our tradition, we do. But I don't know that it originates in the tradition. Does that make sense? Women go to the mikvah afterwards. But what do men do? They're supposed to go to mikvah. Yeah, but they don't. There you are. But this is this is ritual impurity, not badness. Right. This is a highly structured ceremony, and I was thinking—I don't remember anything prior where Moses is subject to some ritual. It always seems he is talking to God in dialogue with God, but there's no ritual around Moses. Because there's never been a Mishkan. That's the point. He's separate and apart. He, he does, he's not obviously not a priest because he's got four days. So there is not, what, what is the relationship? Is, is it a formal relationship? What, what, is, what relationship? What is the face to face? I mean, that's Moshe is a prophet. He's the, he's, the, he's the Navi, he's the prophet. So he has contact and communicates with God and communicates God's will. Do we look at him as the first prophet, Moses? Um, I think he's the first that Torah uses the word Navi about. Um, but, you know, Abraham hung out with God mm-hmm. and talked to God. Um, you know, so, so it's not, you know, it, it's not unheard of in the tradition before Moshe, right? And Yaakov you know, communicates with God through dreams, and so does Yosef. And right, so we have it before Moshe. Moshe is the paradigmatic prophet, right? The rabbis call him, of course, Moshe. What? Rabbeinu. So the rabbis, when they want to give him the the honorific, the highest honorific they can give him is Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe our Rab. Correct. It says the very, very end of the Torah, the last couple of verses, never again did there arise in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord singled out face to face for the various signs and portents. All right. Ears, thumbs, and toes. You have it? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Drop down to the paragraph that begins after sacrificing. Yeah. See it? Yeah. After sacrificing the ram of burnt offering, Moshe took some blood from the ram of ordination and put it on the ridge of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. He did the same with Aaron's sons, right? Then the remains of the animal were boiled and consumed by the Kohanim. That same ritual was repeated throughout seven complete days of celebration. Why was blood applied to those particular extremities, the right thumb, toe, and ear? An ancient commentator, Philo, perceived that the fully consecrated must be pure in words and actions and in life. For words are judged by hearing, the hand is the symbol of action and the foot of the pilgrimage of life. Thus, Philo reads specific meaning into each of these body parts and right, analyzing the special function of each part in terms of their human use. Our words, actions, and life all must cultivate our highest potential of growth, expression, and humanity. Rabbi Abraham Ibn Ezra argues, on the other hand, that the ear symbolizes that one must attend to what has been commanded, and the thumb is the origin of all activity. Unlike Philo, Ibn Ezra 
sees the two pivotal points as obedience to God's mitzvot and a commitment to a life of sacred deeds. While Ibn Ezra provides different reasons than Philo, the two of them agree in reading a metaphoric meaning into the details of this ritual. However, both sages ignore the requirement of spilling blood, and both fail to explain the entire ritual as an interrelated unit. Building on their insights, we can extend their vision by utilizing the methods and findings of the modern study of religion as well, says Rabbi Bradley Shavit Artson. Blood is a symbol filled with ambivalent meaning. The symbol of life, recall the emblem of the Red Cross, and of death, think of the devil's pitchfork, is as a simultaneous expression of both realities, life and death, to your point, Mary. That blood becomes such a prominent symbol for moments and places of transition. So blood is both the life force, which is what allows it to serve as the cleansing agent that it is when an animal is sacrificed. Blood is also death. And so, as I've explained before, some people connect any kind of contact with death as a disruptor. And every single thing that is disruptive, according to this system, can be, and some people do, can be seen as proximity to death. That menstrual blood is about the death Right of that potential life. The, the highest form of impurity is communicated by a corpse. Mm-hmm. So that, that all of it is contact with death. All right. The blood becomes... At a child's birth with Brit Milah, at the first Passover, when blood was smeared on the lentils of Jewish homes, blood marks the moment or the place as a transition between death and renewed life. Here, too, by placing sacrificial blood on the priest's extremities, the Torah indicates that the newly ordained Kohen has passed through a transitional moment from being a private citizen to becoming a representative a representative of God and a public leader. Ear, hand, and foot, an abbreviated code for his entire body, emphasize that service to one's highest ideals, to one's people, or to one's God must be total. Through his induction into the temple ritual, he entered a higher state of purity, devotion, and of service. To become a nation of priests requires of us no less. So the shift from having priests who function on our behalf to, as we said, to what Judith was doing earlier, the reconstruction of that idea, right, is that we are to fulfill the words of Torah that says we are to be an Am Kadosh. We are to be a people sanctified, holified, set apart for divine purposes. And that that is now, right, the injunction on all of us not just the priest. There's no one to do it essentially on our behalf anymore. And for me, this is one of the reasons I remain really attached to the priestly blessing done in the home traditionally on Friday night, right? Because I think it's a way of, of truly enacting that reconstruction of this idea by saying the parents have the authority they have the smicha to bless their children with the words of the priestly blessing. And, and that's traditional, which is hilarious to me, right? That it's so traditional, and yet there's such taboo around doing anything right, reminiscent at all of the temple ritual. But in a very traditional Jewish home, the parents bless the children with birkat kohanim, with the priestly blessing, Right, that only the priests had the power to perform on, be- for, on behalf of God, right? Blessing the people. How do you explain that? Exactly. Exactly. How do I explain that? Right? Because I think there's I, I haven't thought it through, but but there I think there's a tension between not wanting to in any way reenact or encroach on the you know, the temple system and deep connection to the need 
to reconstruct this agency. It's a longing. You know, that there's, there's an agency the priests have that clearly, right, tradition remained attached to, both in Duchanan, when we have the ceremony where the Kohanim are called, the Levites come to wash their feet, and the Kohanim are called in a traditional setting to bless the congregation, both in that and, I think, in the home on Friday night, there's this, there's this real attachment to the agency that the priests have. And, and a, a desire to connect somehow to the power that people experienced through them. The rabbis went for it. I, I know. It's, I know. It's, it's crazy. And this simpler just to look at this and say that every community needs rituals to thrive and survive. Of course. Her question was, what, well, I just said it was a taboo to do anything related to this. It may not have anything to do with coordination as much as it's a nice ritual that we pass out from Jesus. Right, but why not do frankincense and myrrh then? Exactly. Right, so I think her question was, if we, if we stay so far away from this stuff because it's so scary, then why do we bring this one element right because in? I think and why do we pass the Torah down from through the bar mitzvah? That, that, that's different, but go ahead. There's a recognition here of the sacred responsibility that parents and role that parents <coughs> in the life of their children and making them into a mensch. Right. Yeah. I think. From what? Absolutely. And that seems to supersede the taboo around any of this ritual, which is fascinating. I like it. There you go. But what you said before was that it's converted to all of us being, you know, holy and attempting to uh, carry out um, uh, those commandments. And the problem is that that's, that's taking a big bite out of the cookie. Um, it's, it's really difficult to look at you know the whole community being holy when we see that that's not the case. And it's always been the case, right? Like there's a chatat offering. The high priest brings a chatat, right? So it's always been recognized that we're going to sin, that we're going to mess up. The, the challenge, right, is just to feel and experience some sense of hitting reset that, that we've lost with the loss of the temple, right? We've, we've, we've lost some access to the, the sense that we're forgiven and that everything is purified and we start over. And I think that's sometimes a big part of the struggle is, yes, everything looks like it's a mess, and there's not a great way to hit reset for us to feel like we get a second chance. That's kind of what Shabbat's right? all about. Which is, which is, for me, why Yom Kippur mm-hmm. is so important. And I think, I'm going to step out on a limb mm-hmm. here, I think it's why Jews still come to shul on Yom Kippur. <laughs> because there is... Some way still, I think, that Yom Kippur serves as the only thing that gives us any hope that we might can start anew. Because you're right. Otherwise, you look around and go, really? Really? This, this is the holy people? Really? Right? And, um, and we, we've, lost, you know, a, we've lost connection to that, that real sense that, we, that we're wiping the slate clean. And I think for me, that, that remains the power of Yom Kippur, is it's the one time I feel like we really can get a sense of, of I don't know. Hope? Possibility? But, but hope because right. we have been forgiven. Mm-hmm. You, you know what I mean? And I so envy Catholics' <laughs> confession. <laughs> I so deeply envy <laughs> confession so because you, they have the real sense that they've been absolved. Yeah. And, and that someone has the authority on behalf of God to do that for you. 
I so wish. <laughs> right? And and we're stuck with chuva. <laughs> we gotta work. We gotta work it's at like, this. Really? Like seriously? Right? It's like chuva? That's what we get? Right? So it's which is messy and hard and right. and awful in some ways. But then we uncover the ability to find our own healing within. That you know that since we can give a priest or another the power or what that they can heal us, really that's just from the belief in our own perception. So when we turn it into our into our own being and realize that we can we can grant our own self you know, freedom from missing the mark then we're free to move past that to other areas of um, consciousness, awareness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I mean, yeah, of course. <laughs> and, you know. I would say for me, for me, the challenge is to find the humanness in all of this because it is so remote from any of our or my experience and it's so easy to just say oh this is just old stuff and just a lot of superstition but these were human beings and it wasn't that long ago in the history of mankind that this was going on and these people really found something in it and that to me is the challenge that, that is to find something in this that maybe I could reconstruct or that speaks to me today and that isn't just, oh my God, I'm glad that's over. See, I, that is so funny because I have the complete opposite yeah. response. Okay. I wish we had this. Mm-hmm. I wish we had this. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't see anything foreign yeah. in it. I, to me, it is perfectly human yes. to say, give me something mm-hmm. that washes away the effects mm-hmm. of my messing it all up. Psychiatrists. I love that. I mean, the Jews have psychiatrists. It's so. I'm with you on that. It, it's 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 the blood and the killing. It, it's it's the nature of how that goes on. But what I think what you're talking about is what I look for is so what is there in this? Which is exactly what you're talking about. Because if we can never wash it clean, ever, ever, ever. If you do something wrong and there is no way to fix it, that is a horrible, horrible. Hundred percent. Thank God we, you know, we developed an entire right, system called can, rabbinic right. Judaism, right, to to address exactly that question. Without the temple, what, what? And now we have it. We have prayer three times. I mean, you know, the, we we came up with a system that enables us to affect. That reset without having to kill bulls. Without having to kill bulls. <laughs> Ask me if I think it's as powerful. Do you think it's as powerful? I do not. <laughs> I understand your frustration, right? It's not as powerful. But what I do find appealing about what I think reconstructionist view is correctly. Can you speak a little louder, Robert? Uh, if the if the sin is against God, it's forgivable by the priesthood or religious authorities or whatever. If the sin is against people, you must rectify it directly with the people. Yes. You have hurt. And to me, uh, I, I find that a very uh, intellectually and personally fulfilling philosophy. 100%. You can't just go to the priest and have the priest absolve you of something terrible that you have done to another person. Correct. Because, I mean, we see that going on. Yes. And it's not very appealing. Right. And so it's an, it's an evolution. Right, so we so evolved. I, I like where we <laughs> we, we evolved into a people who this is our philosophy, right? Of how you deal with chet, right. you know, how you deal with wrongdoing, um, and I too really love that philosophy. I just am still somebody who would just love there to be a finishing <laughs> something after I've made restitution, after I've gone to the person, after they forget. There is this part of me that still wishes there was some final closure. Something, yeah. Explosion. Did have you? Did you have your hand up, Owen? How does this disruptor 
of bodily fluids and childbirth, even childbirth. How does that marry with uh, thou shalt be fruitful and multiply? That's what I was saying. You're commanded to be dysregulated. <laughs> yes, so then you must purify that. Yes. Yes. And and the reason I say that is because I want to make it clear that it wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. It was irregular. And anyone who's given birth to a child, I can tell you, it is irregular. Oh my God! Right. So it's not normal, and you're not normal. And so you are. You are excused from regular activity while you are in a state of dysregularity. And so I think it's an honoring of what happens to us that we have lost. We have lost, because there was also a ritual to bring people back Mm -hmm. into regularity. So a cancer patient who loses their hair and goes through chemo and is a cancer patient, cancer patient, cancer patient, cancer patient, has no way of coming back into regularity once they're done. And I, I I mean, I just use that as as an example of a complete dysregulation. You're excused because you have to be, right, from regular activities in some way. And then there's no way to acknowledge, once that's finished, that you're back. Graduation. We, we have it after there, there's, when the there's no... Takes you, it walks you out of your morning area. So there, that is a ritual that, that takes you back into regularity. Right. So what I'm saying is, I think there's an honoring in this system to the realities that, that we deal with that we have lost. And so I'm not saying I want to go back to this, but I am saying I think we misunderstand in our modern language. We, we misunderstand the point of impurity, right, of, of, of separating between the pure and the impure, the regular and the non-regular. We, we've, we've lost some kind of... Um, way of acknowledging the disruptors. You know, that people go back to work right after somebody's died. Like, I, you know, it's, it, right? We, we've just kind of lost this sense of, no, you are other for a while. And then we're going to do something to acknowledge, right, when that's done, that you're back. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.